on August 10, check out this SDIRA summit. And we're also going to be doing an after party if you guys would like to join us. If you can't make it to the full day seminar, we're going to be charging 20 bucks for you to come to the after party just so you can get Cliff Notes version and hang out with the cool kids who came. What is this summit about? It's about self-directed IRAs to get at your retirement money to be able to invest in things like real estate. I'm kind of got mixed feelings about this self-directed IRA. Personally, like some QRPs, and I actually don't even use retirement accounts. I'd rather get my money quicker than to wait till I'm 65, whenever that will happen. And I have some thoughts about self-directed IRAs being subject to UDFI tax. But either way, I want to learn more about it, and I want to hang out with you guys. This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Hey, Simple Passive Cash listeners. Today, I got Richard Duncan on the line today. Richard Duncan, I'm sure you've heard of the name before, is author of three books on the global economic crisis. Uh, you can find them on Amazon. I'm sure they're called The Dollar Crisis, Causes, Consequences, and Cures, which forecasts the global economic crisis of 2008. And um, he began his career in, in the equities analysis in Hong Kong in 1986, advised a lot of equities firms, and he also worked as a consultant for the IMF in Thailand during the Asia crisis. Today, he is now the publisher of the video newsletter Microwatch, which can be found on his website. We'll talk about that at the end. I'll do a little screen share. I bought into his program, currently a subscriber, and it's great to finally talk to you, Richard. Thanks, Lane. It's nice to meet you. Yeah, so today you're living in Thailand, sort of just living the dream. I mean, are you, are you just sort of just you doing, is this kind of like living the dream for you, just sort of creating content and dialogue on the macro economy? Well, so I first came to Asia as a backpacker just after I finished university in 1983. I backpacked around the world and I was for a year and I was lucky to see Asia at the time because it was just beginning to really boom economically. So after the backpacking, I went back to business school for a couple of years in, in the US. And when I finished that, I moved to Hong Kong in 86. And so I had great timing. Hong Kong's economy was absolutely on fire. And I've spent most of my career working in Asia, initially as an equities analyst, and then working for fund management companies and hedge funds. And during the last 30 years, I've eventually started writing books. I've written three books. And now I'm working away on the fourth book that I hope will be out next year. And also producing this video newsletter, Macro Watch. Every couple of weeks, I upload a new video uh, describing some, something important going on in the global economy and how that's likely to impact asset prices and the commodities and currencies. So living the dream, well, Thailand is a very nice place to live. The great weather and very nice people. But um, I'm, I tell you, I'm working harder than I ever had. So if living the dream involves hard work, then yes, I'm living the dream in a very nice place. Well, like I say, after quitting my job a few months ago, you live a life of choosing and freedom as opposed to obligation. You've got to go and do something for somebody else. So. Well, that's right. I'm, I'm, I am doing exactly what I want to be doing. I enjoy doing the research. I'm I want to write books, and so that's, that's, that is living the dream. Awesome. So a lot of the listeners today are pretty astute and, you know, read the news. And, but I wanted to kind of start it out to, you know, folks that are kind of just getting on this uh, alternative mainstream news 
And let's take maybe take it back to pre two thousand eight. You know, what kind of led up to the the supposedly big crash? Okay, so I was very lucky to to live in Thailand during the first half of the nineteen nineties. I started working in Hong Kong in '86 as a securities analyst, and before long, was promoted into being head of research for James Capel Securities in Thailand in 1990. And at that time, Thailand's economy was growing at 10% a year. The stock market was really booming. I had a very large research department. There were 10 analysts reporting to me and another 10 support staff. So we had a very good understanding of exactly what was going on in Thailand's economy and all the Thai companies at that time. And I stayed in Thailand at that time six years. And the first three years, it was truly something of an economic miracle. But by 94, it was clear that something was not right. It was blowing into a bubble. And everyone should have been able to recognize that. Everywhere you looked out the window, there were hundreds of cranes on the horizon building high-rise buildings. And it wasn't just the property sector that was experiencing this extraordinary boom. Because we were doing research on all the listed companies, we could see that the same sort of thing was happening with all the major industries across the country. And that was great, but the problem was there just wasn't going to be enough purchasing power in Thailand, given the low income of most people, to absorb all of the capacity that was being produced. And so I started writing quite bearish reports on the economy, bearish meaning predicting that the economy would only grow by 7% a year instead of 10% a year. But the, it did continue to boom, and it didn't bust until 1997. But when it did, the Thai stock market fell 95% in dollar terms. And so I always say I had my education in bubble-nomics in Thailand. I was very fortunate to be here and watch this extraordinary boom and bust cycle. And that's where I understood um, the mechanics that drive these economic cycles. And the, and the role that credit plays in creating these booms. So after that, I, I moved to Washington and worked for the World Bank in 1998, 99, and 2000. And when I was there, the NASDAQ bubble was going on. So I saw another bubble there. And so eventually, after watching one bubble after another, I wrote my first book, which was The Dollar Crisis. It was published in 2003. And in that book, the theme of that book was that the global economy was being destabilized by the giant U.S. trade deficits. The trade deficits were destabilizing the global economy. They blew the trade surplus countries like Japan and later on the Asia crisis countries. All the countries that had trade surpluses with the U.S., those countries blew into bubbles and they ultimately all popped. And so to understand why that happened, it's important to understand how the economy used to work under the gold standard or under the quasi-gold standard Bretton Woods system, which broke down in 1971. Under the gold standard or the Bretton Woods system, trade between countries had to balance because if one country had a big trade deficit with another country, the deficit country had to pay with his gold and before long, it would run out of gold. And so it couldn't continue having these large trade deficits. For example, in the 19th century, if England had a very big trade deficit with France, then England's gold would have been literally put on a ship and sent over to France. 
So France would have had more gold and their economy would have had more gold. So more gold in the banking system that would have allowed credit to expand. So credit would have expanded. France's economy would have boomed. They would have had more employment, but the opposite would have happened in England. England would have lost gold. So credit would have contracted and the economy would have gone into severe recession and unemployment would have gone up. So pretty soon the poor unemployed English would stop buying so many expensive French products and the rich French would start buying more cheap English products and the trade would come back into balance. That's the way the gold standard and the Bretton Woods system worked. Trade between countries balanced. There was an automatic adjustment mechanism that made trade balanced. But once the Bretton Woods system broke down, it didn't take long for the United States to discover that it could buy things from other countries and it didn't have to pay with gold anymore. It could just pay with paper dollars or treasury bonds denominated in paper dollars. So it started running these massive trade deficits, initially with Japan in the 1980s. So like France in my earlier example, Japan had the trade surplus. It was getting paid with foreign money, dollars came flooding into Japan. And these dollars went into Japan's banking system and they caused the credit to expand very rapidly. And as the credit expanded, Japan's economy boomed. But unlike England, the US economy didn't deflate because the US wasn't paying with a limited amount of gold. It was just paying with essentially paper money or treasury bonds. So the US trade deficit continued to grow larger and larger. Japan's surplus grew larger and larger. The Japanese economy boomed and boomed and boomed until the stock market was trading on a 100 times PE multiple by the late 80s. And the gardens around the Imperial Palace in Tokyo, just though that park was more valuable than all of California. So then it, then it all blew up in 1990, the bubble pop and the great Japanese bubble uh, deflated and Japan's economy is no larger today than it was in 1993. Don't adjust for deflation. So that's what, that's what we've seen again and again, these trade imbalances, the countries with the surpluses blow into bubbles. So afterwards, we had Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, and Korea in 1997. And then more recently, China's economy has been blown into an enormous economic bubble in the same way. So basically, other, just, just so people, we don't lose anybody here. Basically, the United States, we're the consuming economy. We buy a lot of stuff. We import a lot of goods and we ship out United States dollars. That's, that's sort of the, uh, the, the routing system. That's right. And within the United States, the, the thing that gives us our purchasing power is credit. Credit growth has been driving economic growth in the U.S. for decades. For example, total debt and total credit, they're the two sides of the same coin. When I talk about total credit, what I mean is all the debt in the country, government debt, household sector debt, corporate debt, financial sector debt, all the debt, relative to the size of the economy, debt to GDP, from 1950 until 1980, this debt to GDP in the U.S. was about 150 percent. Starting in 1980, the debt or credit growth accelerated, and the ratio of debt to GDP expanded from 150 percent up to 350 percent in the U.S. And so as, as the debt and credit expanded, that gave individuals more money to spend. They could borrow and spend, and the more they spent, the stronger the economy became. 
And as long as the credit kept expanding, then the US economy boomed and it pulled in imports from the rest of the world. And so at the peak in 2000, well, just before the peak in 2006, the US trade deficit, the current account deficit hit $800 billion that one year. That was the amount that the US went into debt to the rest of the world, buying things essentially on credit. That was $2 million a minute that the US was going into debt. And of course, that meant the rest of the world had an $800 billion trade surplus with the United States. They grew $800 billion more than they would have if trade had been balanced, as it always had been in the past. So this arrangement completely destabilized the global economy. And when the American households became so heavily indebted, they couldn't repay the interest on their loans anymore in 2007 and 2008, then this whole bubble began to deflate and the households started defaulting. The financial sector uh, effectively went bankrupt and we came very close to collapsing into a new Great Depression. And the only reason we didn't is because this time the government intervened so aggressively. In the 1930s, when the, another big credit bubble popped, the government really didn't know what to do and they didn't do very much. They more or less just sat, sat back and let market forces work. And market forces did work, uh, but unfortunately, when market forces were through working, the economy was 50% smaller than it had been in 1929. And the unemployment rate was uh, 20 something percent. So this time when the bubble popped, the government, rather than letting market forces shrink the economy by 50%, this time the government intervened with trillion dollar budget deficits and the central bank, the Fed, helped finance these enormous budget deficits by creating three and a half trillion dollars through quantitative easing. And at the same time, other governments around the world did similar things. The Bank of England had quantitative easing, the European Central Bank did, and also the Bank of Japan. And meanwhile, China's central bank also was firing on all cylinders. I'm super excited about a new program I'm rolling out that's going to reinvent scammy real estate education programs. So excited, like Marine Kondo cleaning stuff up excited. Announcing my new mastermind program which consists of a closed member site with 27 packed weeks of content, plus bi-weekly group video conference calls to ask whatever. Half of the calls will be centered around granular investing tactics and the other half will be holistic wealth building strategies that I have learned from the wealthy. That's 25 plus hours of group coaching and masterminding. And a secret Facebook group too. I know what you're thinking. Not another flippin' Facebook group. Well, this one's gonna be different. More intimate, exclusive, and no cheapskates or shady vendors in it. I've been coaching individual clients over the past couple years and I figured out what you guys need and a way to provide it in a cost-effective way. Learn more, go to simplepassivecashflow.com backslash journey and join before the first cohort fills up and the introductory pricing goes away. So this coordinated global policy response involving massive government intervention and huge money creation by the central banks, this reflated the, the global economy and it prevented a new Great Depression. And so that's pretty much where we are now. Because of the government intervention, the bubble has been reflated. So it's important for everyone to understand that our economic system is not really, shouldn't be described as capitalism. 
capitalism was an economic system in which the government played very little role. It was an economic system that was driven by uh, investors. Businessmen would invest, some of them would make a profit, they would save that profit and reinvest it. So the, the growth dynamic was driven by investment and savings. But that's not how our system works at all anymore. Our economic system is driven by credit creation and consumption and more credit creation and more consumption. And here the government plays a, a leading role. So if you look back to 1950, any time that total credit in the U.S. grew by less than 2%, this is adjusted for inflation to compare apples with apples. Anytime credit grows by less than 2%, the U.S. economy has gone into a recession. So that happened nine times between 1950 and 2009. And so if we don't have credit growth, the economy goes into recession. And if we have a significant contraction in credit, then the economy goes into depression. So I call this economic system creditism rather than capitalism because the key driver is credit expansion. The problem is in 2008, we reached the point where the, the private sector, households and businesses couldn't continue borrowing enough to drive the economy. And so the government had to step in. And since then, government debt has increased by something like $12 trillion between 2008 and now. And that's what's driven the economy. But even that, even during the last, say, eight years, credit growth has just barely been above 2% a year, which I call the recession threshold. That's generated, that's kept us out of recession, but the economic growth has been weak. And so we've had to supplement credit growth with a new economic growth driver, and that has been asset price inflation. The Fed is very concerned about the stock market and the property market. So the net worth of the American households, in other words, all the Americans, their net worth, that most is- Most people, most people have their, their money in the stock market and mutual funds or 401ks or, or the pensions. Right, that's right. And also, of course, in, in, the, in their homes and in some cases, other property. So the wealth, the net worth of the Americans, if you take all of their assets minus all of their debt, it's now $109 trillion. This is up 82% from 2009. It's up $49 trillion from the, the low level that it hit in 2009. And so it's been active. The policy of the Fed has been to push up asset prices in order to create a wealth effect, push up the stock market, push up the property market, so that the Americans would have more wealth that they could borrow against and spend, and that has boosted consumption, and that has boosted economic growth in the US, and that's helped boost global economic growth as well. So we've reached the point now, though, where the Fed has effectively become a hostage to the stock market. The Fed just simply can't allow the stock market to fall because if it falls, then the wealth will be destroyed, consumption will fall, the economy will go into recession, and credit growth is already too weak to drive the economy. So we could e easily spiral back down into recession. So every time the stock market starts to have a little correction, as it did during December and again in May, that has forced the Fed to radically change its, its policies. In December, the up until December, the, the Fed was telling us that they were going to continue hiking interest rates and also 
carry on with quantitative tightening. In other words, the, the opposite of quantitative easing. With quantitative easing, the Fed created money and used it to buy bonds, to push up bond prices and push down interest rates. With quantitative tightening, they've been doing the exact opposite. They've effectively been destroying dollars and selling bonds, which tends to, to push bond prices down and interest rates up. Right. And, so I'll, and Fed, I'll translate that for the investors in the crowd. I mean, how that affects us in real life is our interest rates and quantitative tightening from 2000, I'd say 10 to maybe even 2015, 16. I don't know exactly. You know, your interest rates were going lower and lower and lower and lower. Now the tightening, it's supposedly going up, but it, you know, it's very slow, slow kind of process. Yeah. So when the stock market started falling in December, the, the Fed had to say, okay, uh, we've changed our policy. We're not going to keep tightening interest rates and we're going to end quantitative tightening much sooner than we said we were going to. And then, so the stock market recovered, but then by May, the stock market started falling again. And so the Fed has more or less been forced to say that they're going to begin cutting interest rates. And they're going to cut interest rates later on this month at the end of July. So it's important to understand that the Fed just simply can't allow the stock market to fall because if it does, the U.S. could go back into severe recession again. The analogy so that's driving that comes Fed policy. The analogy kind of comes to my mind as somebody running down the hills. As long as you can keep on your feet, you'll be fine. But as soon as you trip and fall, you're, you're taking a tumble harder and harder as you keep going faster and faster. Right. And so their job is being made more difficult in some respect by this U.S.-China trade war. Once the U.S. went into crisis in 2008, up, and up until then, it had been the U.S. economy and U.S. imports that had been driving the global economy. But after, after the crisis, the U.S. imports were no longer growing as quickly enough. They were no longer driving the global economy. China actually became the global growth driver. They, because China's government invests so aggressively and their economy continued to grow very rapidly. And we, of course, everyone understands that in percent terms, China's economy has been growing much more quickly than the U.S. economy for decades. But only in the last eight years or so, in dollar terms, China's economy has grown more than the, US, than the U.S. economy has in absolute dollar terms now for something like six out of the last eight years at least. So the Chinese economy became the new economic growth driver for the world. But China's economy was already facing serious trouble before the trade war started. They have an economic bubble. They have invested so much in, in property and across all of their industries that they have excess capacity of everything. For instance, in their cement industry, they say that in just three years between 2011, 2011, 12, and 13, China produced as much cement as the United States did during the entire 20th century. So how do you keep growing your cement industry when you are already producing excess cement on such an extraordinary scale? And it's not just the cement industry is steel and all their other industries as well. So they've hit the point now where they just have so much production capacity. They're not enough. The people in China don't earn enough money to buy it all. And the rest of the world, now there's a growing protectionist backlash against China and I trade the, tariffs are going up. The big thing that we see a lot in like, you know, headlines on social media is the ghost towns, right? And they create these, these nice properties, but no one can afford the dang things. Well, that's exactly right. Uh, one Chinese professor told me a story. He said he was taken to 
one of the mid-sized Chinese cities, cities being cities with only one or two million people in them. And he was shown, a, the, the mayor took him to, showed him this beautiful new bridge that had just been completed. The thing was, there was no river. <laughs> the bridge had been built in a place where the, they were planning to build a river there at some point in the, in the future, but at this point, you know, there was a bridge, but there was no river. And that just, along with the ghost cities, that just goes to show you um, what kind of trouble China's economy is facing. They have grown in the past through export-led growth, exporting mostly to the U.S., and investment-driven growth. Well, they've reached the point now where the, the U.S., the whole world is just not large enough to continue absorbing more and more Chinese exports every day. The U.S. trade, China's trade surplus with the United States is $1 billion a day, more than that now. So we, China's growth model, its economic growth model is in crisis. They can't continue growing through exporting to the rest of the world because the rest of the world is saturated. They can't sell their goods internally because the Chinese people at home don't earn enough income. The, the disposable personal income per capita is something like $10 a day in China. So their economic growth model is in crisis and China's economy has effectively stopped growing. Their imports, rather than when China imports more from the rest of the world, that benefits the global economy. Well, now their imports are, are shrinking. So, so, so rather Richard, than being a growth I mean, driver, they're, they're, actually, they're actually being a drag on global growth. And the so slowdown thing, in China's like economy- about, I like about the, mar the macro watch it, you know, just kind of outline for the, the listeners here is I think like the, the 2008 crisis in America, it was kind of told to us in the big short movie, whether it's right or wrong, that it was sort of a United States internal problem, which it was. But I like how you kind of outline how there was this global issue happening. And is this very similar to kind of what's happening in China? There's obviously this global um, trade war happening, but China has it, is sort of having their sort of internal problems with all this, I don't know what you'd call it, non-production and ghost towns, just like how the United States was having internally. Is it the same thing? I mean, it's like sticking a, a stick in a bite. Yes. Yes, that's right. I mean, China's was going to stop growing, I believe, in have a severe recession even had there been no trade war but now with this trade war making things worse it's accelerated uh, the china's economic crisis so i've made a lot of macro watch videos on this subject there's and i've grouped them together in a course on china's called china's economic crisis but yes i mean so this is a very important not only for china but because the global economy is slowing down with china that means there's not enough. That's why global interest rates are falling. Another reason global interest rates are falling. There's not enough demand for money. People don't want the businesses don't want to borrow money because there's no place to borrow the money and invest it and make a profit. And so with, with insufficient demand for money, of course, interest rates are, are the cost of renting money. And if there's a lot of demand, for, for money, then interest rates should rise. But now there is not a lot of demand for money because there are very few viable investment opportunities in the global economy. So interest rates all around the world are falling. In fact, there are negative interest rates, a total of $13 trillion of bonds around the world now actually have negative interest rates. In Germany, for instance, this, this morning, if you buy a 10-year 10 10 German government bond, the yield is negative 35 basis points. 
And in Japan, the yield on a 10-year Japanese government bond is negative 15 basis points. It means if anyone who buys those bonds and holds them to maturity, they're guaranteed to lose money. So the reason interest rates are so low, one reason is the one I've just described. The global economy is weak and there's weak demand for money. But at the same time, central banks have created so much money through quantitative easing, not only in the U.S., but around the world, that the supply of money has grown. So you have a lot of money available and not a lot of demand for the money. So that explains why interest rates in the U.S. have been falling and why interest rates all around the world have been falling. Now, there is a upside, of course, to the lower interest rates. The U.S. interest rates, 10-year government bond yields have fallen from something like 3.3% six months ago now to 2%. And with the interest rates having fallen back to 2% or even a little bit lower, that makes borrowing money more affordable. And so mortgage rates have come down in the U.S. and that's helped helping the property market. That's helping businesses become more profitable uh, than they would have been if they had had to pay interest rates above 3%, for instance. So the lower interest rates have temporarily benefited the economy and they pushed up the stock market because of course the lower interest rates go, then people tend to, if you can only earn such a small amount on your deposit in a bank, you don't mind taking your you're, you're incentivized to take your savings out of the bank and put them into the stock market. So the lower the interest rates have gone on the 10-year government bonds, that's another reason the stock market is at a record high. But it's a delicate balancing act because, as I said earlier, the Fed has to keep the stock market moving higher, or at least it has to prevent it from going lower. But with interest rates already so low, there are limits as to what monetary policy by itself can accomplish. If the US economy continues to slow, as it looks like it is, and the global economy is continuing to slow, we may find that much sooner than people currently expect, the Fed is going to have to start cutting interest rates. And before long, they could be back at zero again. Right now, they're roughly two and a quarter percent on the federal funds rate. The Fed's going to cut that to 2% in later this month. And if the economy continues to slow down, they'll have to keep cutting it. And before long, they'll be back at zero. And at that point, they'll have to launch another round of quantitative easing and start printing money again and buying government bonds to push up the bond prices and push the bond yields even lower to keep stimulating the economy. So this is, there's a limit as to how much money, monetary policy can accomplish by itself. What would be very helpful and what we're likely to see more of is the government spending more, more fiscal stimulus. Um, already, because of the tax cuts that were implemented about a year and a half ago, the US budget deficit has become much larger again. It's back over a trillion dollars. And that's helped the economy. And it's going to take more of that, frankly, to keep the economy growing. So what people, people are generally told that the US has a, a capitalist economy and but in reality, the, the economy at the macro level is driven by, is government directed through a combination of central bank monetary policy and fiscal policy. And what it's going to require going forward, if it's going to remain out of crisis, it's going to remain, it's going to require more government borrowing and spending. And it's also going to require more paper money creation by the Fed. Now, in the past, this would, not, this would have led to extremely high rates of inflation. 
the way that it did in the 1970s. The reason the Fed and the other central banks have been able to create so much money over the last decade without causing high rates of inflation is because of globalization. Because of globalization is extremely deflationary. Instead of hiring, instead of having to hire someone in Michigan and pay that person $200 a day to work in a factory, you can hire someone in Western China or Central China and pay that person $10 a day, or someone in Vietnam and pay them $5 a day, or someone in Bangladesh and pay that person $2 a day. There are 2 billion people in the world living on less than $3 a day. So suddenly, we have an, essentially an infinite supply of low-cost labor, and that has been pushing down wage rates in the United States and the developed economies, and it's also been driving down the cost of manufactured goods, and this has, this, this has been deflationary, and these deflationary forces from globalization have completely offset the inflationary forces that would normally be expected from paper money creation. And so we have found ourselves in a, in a unique moment in history, in fact, where what we have seen over the last 10 years is the U.S. government's budget deficit or its debt has expanded by $12 trillion, and the Fed helped pay for that by creating $3.5 trillion out of thin air and buying government bonds through quantitative easing, all without creating any significant inflation at the CPI level whatsoever. And so this is what we're going to see more of in the future. As long as globalization persists, we're not going to have high rates of inflation at the CPI level. And it's going to take more fiscal stimulus from the government and more quantitative easing from the Fed to keep the economy growing. Now, many people find this alarming. I mean, common sense suggests this is somewhat alarming. But whether you like the idea or not like the idea, you should recognize that this is the most likely scenario of what is going to happen. You, you might prefer that it, it play out in some other way, but it's probably not going to. If you want to understand the financial markets, you have to understand the reality rather than ideally what you would like to see. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself, because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.